0: two years ago that in making some plans for some sermons, I decided I wanted to preach on the minor prophets. I had been reading through them personally just for my own devotional reading and realized how much in the minor prophets relates to things that we are facing today. Of course, when you get to the prophet Nahum, you tend to think people are going to say ho-hum. Uh, What's special about Nahum? What's special about what he has to say? And I tried to think of a title that I thought would be appropriate for him. And uh, one of my good friends who happens to preach in Alabama titled his lesson, The Sermon Jonah Wanted to Preach. And I thought that was a really good title for the lesson. And I want to begin with the idea that preachers often want to choose their own topics. I'm very fortunate here that the elders are very good about letting me choose what I want to preach on each and every week. They do make uh, suggestions for input and lessons, but most preachers get to choose what they want to speak on. However, when you go to gospel meetings or particularly lectureships or summer series, quite often people will assign you a topic. And I will tell you, quite often as I'm looking through the list of the topics, I will say, I wish I had that topic instead of the one I was assigned. Because we all have our own personal preferences. I remember a few years ago being asked to speak on the power lectures at the South Haven congregation. And I was called up, would you be able to come at this date? And I said, well, sure, I'll be able to come. And then they said, your topic is circumcision. And then I'm like, really? Is that the topic you give me? I'd rather have a different topic. Some topics are easier to preach on. I love, for instance, being able to talk about the Lord's church, to talk about salvation to talk about the good things, and I think all of us would prefer to study that. In fact, that's what Jude wrote in the book of Jude, verse 3. He said, when I was wanting to write to you about our common salvation, he said, I had to write to you about contending earnestly for the faith. But when you think about the two prophets sent to Nineveh, you think, first of all, about Jonah. In fact, we're all very familiar with the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah was one of repentance and restoration. God sent Jonah to tell the people of Nineveh, which happens to be the capital of Assyria, that they were going to be overthrown, that they were going to be destroyed. However, they repented from all the way from the king on down to the lowest of persons. Of course, that wasn't the message Jonah wanted to preach. He really wanted Nahum's topic which was a declaration of destruction. The fact that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And I would imagine that if you were to ask Jonah, do you want Nahum's topic? He'd say, yes, give it to me. But I imagine if you'd ask Nahum, would you like Jonah's topic? He probably would say, said, yeah, I'd a lot rather tell people that there's a hope for you. That there's a possibility for you. And yet these two prophets were separated by a hundred years. Jonah first, and the repentance that took place, and then Nahum finally having to announce what's going to happen to him. Let me tell you, there are three things, there are three chapters to Nahum, we're going to look at them. They are destruction decreed, destruction described, and number three, destruction deserved. And so what I want us to do is to go ahead and jump into this lesson. Let's begin with the first verse of Nahum chapter 1. The burden. You can stop right there. Sometimes if you're reading other translations, they'll say the oracle, but really it's the burden. The original word means something that's really heavy and hard to carry along and I want you to think about being the bearer of bad news. Imagine going to a mother and a father and telling them that their child has a terminal illness and they won't live to be six years old. I don't want to have to do that. I don't even like it when it's required of me sometimes to go to families who've lost a loved one And to hang my head and say, I've got to tell you that your loved one has passed away. Folks, I don't like to see tears. I don't like to see sadness. And I am sure that whenever you think about a prophet delivering a message of doom and gloom, it's a burden. It's a difficult thing to bear But let me tell you what God inspired Nahum to talk about. And that is the character of God. I suggest to you that really this is the lesson of the book of Nahum is the character of God. Let's look, beginning with verse 2, going through verse 8. Let's look in detail at what Nahum was given. God is jealous. And the Lord avenges, the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel are withered, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. I'm going to continue on our reading, but I want you to think about that last sentence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks... Thrown down by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold. In a day of trouble. And he knows. Those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood. He will make an utter end of this place. Its place. And darkness will pursue the enemies. Now. For just a moment, think with me about what Nahum just said about God. God is patient. That is, God is not going to just immediately, when man does something wrong, get him like that. No, that's not the way God operates. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, as he talks about God's... Acts in this world. He talks about people who say, Where is the promise of his coming? Because all things have continued as they were since the creation of the world. He talks about they willfully forget the flood. And then he comes down to verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do not get the idea that God is somehow up in heaven just saying, Watch, watch, one of them's gonna make a mistake and I'm gonna get him. That's not the way that God operates. That's not the character of God. God is patient. Verse 3 God is slow to anger. But God's also a God of justice, He is passionate. Notice how God here is pictured. As one who comes and uses the word fury, his anger, his wrath. God is passionate about what is right versus what is wrong. We're being told today that we must be bland, that we must be tolerant. We must let everything go. We must live and let live. And no, that's not the way God. We ought to be passionate about what is right versus what is wrong. God is pure. As you observe this context, you see that God is good to those who trust in Him. He is a stronghold. He is a refuge. You do right things, you have God on your side. There's no injustice in Him. God is powerful. I think it's interesting as you get down to about verses 5 and 6 and he starts talking about the mountains and it says that the, the earth heaves at his presence. You see, God's power is remarkable. But you see, here's a problem in our world. We have too many people who have a warped view of God. There's some people, for instance, like Jonah, who want God to be a God of justice, but no mercy. He didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. He only wanted God to just bring destruction upon them. In fact, let me tell you the way many people in this world think. We want justice for others, but we want mercy for ourselves. And that won't work. I can tell you about what Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. But let me just use one verse, James chapter 2 and verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have to realize that if we want God to forgive us, we must be willing to forgive others. Jonah wasn't in that kind of mood. We have some folks who when they approach the Bible see no mercy in God. They see no kindness in his actions. And yet I'd suggest to you Nahum stresses that God is good to those who trust in him. He is a stronghold. He is one to whom we can look. But then there's others who fail to see the other side of God. I like the way the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 11. He's actually in Romans 11 been talking about the contrast between Jew and Gentile. And how the fact that God had initially given the message to the Jews, but they had rejected it because they rejected it, the Gentiles got it. When the Gentiles got it, they believed it. And then the hope for the Jewish people, Romans 11 verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. In this manner, all Israel will be saved. Look at verse 22. Therefore, consider the goodness... And severity of God on those who fail, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Do you understand that the picture that Nahum gives is exactly the same picture that Paul gives in the New Testament? Is that the God we serve has two attributes to himself. He has both goodness in the sense of the way he treats us, but there's a severity with regards to those who are his enemies. Voltaire was not correct in many things, but he did make one, I think, very notable comment. God made man in his own image, and man has returned the favor. And what he means by that is simply God made us like himself and we are trying to make God like us. And so if we want to be mean and harsh and unkind and unloving and unmerciful, that's the picture we develop of God. On the other hand, if we want to be tolerant and accepting of everything, we want to develop that picture of God. The truth is, God is not as we perceive him. God is who he is as revealed in the scriptures. Now, if you drop down to verse 15, you get to the end of chapter 1, and you find a statement there about Nahum being a preacher of righteousness. He doesn't use the word preacher, but I want you to notice we're going to tie some passages together. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall pass no more, no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He's talking about the feet of a person who brings good news. The book of Isaiah chapter 40 And chapter 52 also mentions this. When Isaiah says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now I want you to notice. Jerusalem, Zion, don't be timid. Don't hold back. Speak up and say, Behold, you're God. Do you notice the topic, the message? God. Look at chapter 52, verse 7. Behold, or how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Do you notice the last phrase, 49 and 52 7? Behold your God, your God reigns. That's exactly what Nahum is saying. And Paul, and you come to Romans chapter 10, appropriates that same language. What he begins with in verse 13 is a statement that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he begins to back up and say, well, how did you get there? How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they are sent? As is it written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now, don't stop there. Verse 16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So then he says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their words have gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You see, it's a message message. It's a good message that Nahum was bringing. Just like you and I are to bring a good message. Not everybody listens. But you have the destruction decreed. And in that destruction you have two messages. You have to those who are fighting against God as enemies, a message of destruction. But for those who are walking with God, you have a message of deliverance. God, His nature, His work, His justice must be declared. And how people receive it depends upon what it means to them. When Paul is talking in 2 Corinthians 2.16, he gives a picture of it being like an aroma, a smell. And he says, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, aroma of life leading to life. Now, time's going to mean we have to go quicker. Let's go to chapter 2. I want you to notice verse 1. Whenever I read verse 1, I'm going to tell you what went through my mind. Battle stations. I know you've seen movies or uh, maybe there's some pictures where the enemy is right upon you. And the call goes out battle stations and every man has to go to his place to prepare for the battle. Look at verse 1. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen the flanks. Fortify your power mightily. Get ready. The enemy's coming. The enemy is here. God used Babylon to destroy Nineveh. Now how did that happen? Nineveh was a powerful city, sat upon the Tigris River, back the eastern bank of it. Had huge walls. We talked about that when we studied the book of Jonah. Huge walls. God brought an overwhelming flood. That flood weakened the walls and opened a breach within it. And it not only did that, but as the waters flooded, it weakened and destroyed the palace. Listen to chapter 1, verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an end, utter end of its place. Chapter 2, verse 6. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. I could go back and talk to you about some of the historians, particularly the Greek historian, but I think you get the picture. Now what happened? As Nehemiah, or not Nehemiah, Nahum here describes the fall of Nineveh. First thing is panic. I want you to imagine you're inside the walls and someone now comes in with an automatic weapon and they start shooting. What are you gonna do? So well I'm gonna hide under the bench. No, you're gonna run. And somebody says, Halt, halt, stop, don't, don't leave. Look at what verse eight says. Though Nenna of old is like a pool of water, now they flee. Halt, halt! They cry, but no one turns back. There's panic on their faces. The destruction is there. Follow along with me. Verse nine. The city is going to be pillaged. All of the valuable things. He says, take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure of wealth, of every desirable prize. You want it, it's there available. People are going to just take whatever they want, the silver, the gold, anything of value. And then the pain. When you see what's happened, look at verse 10. She's empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, The knees shake. Much pain is in every side and all their faces are drained of color. You see what happened to Nineveh? Pain because of the loss. Mental pain. Physical pain. That's what happens. You may be feeling sorry for Nineveh now, for that capital of Assyria, but you shouldn't. Let's go to chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. He calls Nineveh that bloody city. Now, I want you to understand how bad they were. If I were to ask you, how many of you have noticed on television over the past year what has been taking place in Syria and Iraq by a group known as ISIS? ISIS. They're lining up people who are what they call Christians. They believe in God and they believe in Jesus Christ. They're lining them up and they're taking swords, cutting their heads off. I want you to think of that kind of bloody, barbaric action. Verse 1, woe to the bloody city is full of lies, awful of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. If you go to the British Museum, they have there some of the relief panels from the Assyrian Empire. They brought them there, and they're on display. One of them, the relief says about a man who insulted the god Asher, the little god. Their tongues I tore out, and their skin I flayed. They took pliers and just yanked the man's tongue out. They skinned them. One of the inscriptions says, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over a pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile and some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. You know what I'm talking about? They skinned people cut their skin off them, and put the skin on the wall so people as they would go by would see that and say, wow, look what they do to people. You better not cross them. Thought I might show you a few of these relief panels. It may be difficult for you to see. But if you look in the middle, there's a palm tree, and right at the foot of that palm tree are a number of heads where people have been beheaded. That's their message. That's what's on the wall. You go a little bit further, and there's a man who's actually down on the ground, and what he's doing, he's grinding up the bones of his ancestors so that they can turn them into lime to make concrete. And then they would take people, as you'll see in the center there, and they put them up on a pole, impale them, skewer them, so that they could use them as advertisements of how cruel we are. You don't mess with the Assyrians. Woe to that bloody city. Now, here's God's message to them. Look at your history book. He said in verses 8 through 11 Are you better than Noammon that was situated by the river, that had waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless. Put and loot them were their helpers, your helpers. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed into pieces at the head of every street. There cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. You see, if you go back and you look at the history of, Noamon is actually the ancient city of Thebes, known as the city of a hundred gates. We don't usually use that terminology, but I can tell you where it's at today. It's inside the Luxor, Egypt display. You can look it up on the internet. Look at those beautiful temples, those beautiful buildings in Luxor. Look at the mighty power that that nation possessed. Where is it today? It's nothing more than a bunch of ruins. He said, that's what you're going to be. Look at history. Folks, I'd suggest to you that those of us who live in the United States ought to open our eyes and realize God has taken nations, powerful nations, nations that thought they could stand forever and have humbled them and brought them to their feet. He did that with Thebes, Noaman. He did that with Nineveh, and He can do that with us. Here's the reason why it was deserved. He said in verses 18 and 19, Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains. No one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. You know what's going to happen? Because your leaders are so inept Because they're so inattentive, your nation's going to fall and be destroyed. And then when you think about what he says there in verse 19, your wound is severe. It's terminal. You're not going to survive this. Let me summarize all this together. Here's the message. Here's what you ought to leave with. Where ignorance of God abounds sin flourishes. Where people do not know God and who He really is, sin just flourishes. Let me give you an example. ISIS. The Muslims. Their view of God is a God of hate. A God of vengeance. A God that says, whatever people that we don't like, Kill them. Not only kill them, be cruel in doing that. You see, where ignorance of God, the true God, the righteous God is, sin flourishes. But on the other side of that, those who are liberal, those who are weak, they have an idea that God is so tolerant of everything that it's like what's going on in our country today. We have a man who claims to be the head of a religious body called the Catholic Church. And he arrives, and what is he being surrounded with? Being surrounded by people who believe it's all right to murder babies, abortionists. He's being surrounded by people who believe it's all right to engage in perverted sexual behavior, the homosexuals. And everybody's saying, oh, that's what it's all about. And they're, they're grasping, don't judge, don't judge. Accept this, accept that. Let me tell you, you go back to Nahum 1 and verse 3, God is slow to anger and great in power and will by no means acquit the guilty. You see, where people don't understand God, there's a real serious problem Here's where we end for us. I look at Assyria, Nineveh, and I wonder why did those people not get the message at the beginning when Jonah preached to them? Why is it that these people don't understand they stand before the God of heaven and will give an account? And it'd be very easy for us to just look at them, them, them. But what about us? Hebrews and Romans, so each one shall give an account of himself to God. Each one. And Hebrews 4.12 or 13, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You see, God's going to look at each and every one of us and see us as we really are. You had to stand before God and give an account today. Would God's view be like it was of Assyria? Here's your judgment and it's deserved. Or will it be like one that he says that God is a stronghold, God is a refuge to those who trust him? I will assure you, God knows. You know. If you're not a Christian, why not come forward this morning, confess your faith in Christ, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a Christian, you're struggling with sin, don't let it dominate you. Don't let it control you. Why not come and be restored? While well, together we stand and say.